As Russia began its invasion of Ukraine, America's National Public Radio tweeted five ways to cope with a stressful news cycle. Five ways to deal with the stress of hearing the news about an invasion of Ukraine. Uh, When they tweeted that, they got smashed in the replies. People were furious that as tanks were rolling down the streets, as people were sheltering in cellars under their homes, NPR was thinking about the Americans. Who's caring for them and how stressed they're feeling watching this playing out on their screens? Uh, It was a pretty tone-deaf tweet. I was surprised to see that it's still on the internet today. But I think what NPR tweeted captures something of how we feel about bits of the Bible like Nahum. Uh, Nahum is not a well-known part of the Bible, but it's a pretty simple book to get your head around. It's got a straightforward message, and this is the message, the Assyrians' days are numbered. God is going to bring justice and judgment on the Assyrian Empire. That might be why the message of Nahum is not well known. First up, a message to Assyria doesn't sound relevant. And of course, when we read the Bible, the most important thing is, what's it about me? We think about the Assyrians, well, who are they? We're pretty self-centered in lots of ways, aren't we? Including how we read the Bible. But even more, we don't like hearing of God's judgment. Like the NPR tweet says, it makes us anxious. But at the same time, our world, our community, we want justice. Over the last couple of years, there have been near constant protests from people wanting justice. Uh, Protests from those who want wrongs made right and the guilty brought to account. Uh, Whether protesting wars, racism or public health measures, you don't have to agree with the cause of the protesters to see that from their perspective, it's about Justice. They see that things are not as they should be from their perspective. They, they, they are things that are wrong and we want them to be made right. And so Nahum's message of God's justice, there's something about it that we can't cope with. We, we don't want to think about it. But at the same time, the message of Nahum is a message we want to hear. A message of comfort and compassion because Nahum's message is justice will be done. Now to get into this book, the first thing we need to do is to set the scene. We're going to have to take a little bit of time to do this, to work out where Nahum fits in history. And then the book itself is fairly straightforward. It breaks up into two parts. The first part is verses 2 to 8. They meet. They show us who God is. Verses 2 to 8 is an introduction to God. And then the rest of the book is, well, if this is who God is, what's he going to do about Assyria? And that's pretty much what we're going to do today. We're going to set the scene, we're going to look at God, and then we're going to look at what God will do. So the first sentence of the book sets the scene for us. It tells us who the prophet is and who his message is for. So look in your Bible, Nahum 1.1. A prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. Uh, We'll we'll, we'll deal with Nahum first. His name means compassion or comfort. I think the prophet's name is no accident. 
Yes, his message gives no comfort to Nineveh, but it's a comfort for those who trust in God. Nahum's name means compassion. Nahum is an Elkishite. If you don't know where Elkosh is, that's okay, no one else does either. So that's Nahum for you, the compassionate prophet of God. And his message is about Nineveh. Now, where else might you know Nineveh from? From Jonah. It's the place, uh, it's in modern day Iraq, it's the place Jonah didn't want to go to and take God's message. He jumps in a boat, goes the opposite direction, but when he's forced to go to Nineveh, he takes the message, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Uh, the message works, the people hear the warning and they repent. God forgives them and he spares them from judgment. Uh, Jonah is set sometime in the early to mid 700 BC, 700s BC, so almost 800 years before Jesus, so almost a bit under 3,000 years ago. When Jonah preaches, the people of Nineveh repent. But it doesn't last long. Only a generation or two later, the Ninevites will actually... This is where it's going to get a little confusing. I'm going to talk about Nineveh, but then also I'm going to talk about the Assyrians, the Assyrian Empire. That's because Nineveh is like the capital city of Assyria. It's a royal city. So the Assyrians, 20 or 60 years after Jonah, they come in and wipe out the northern kingdom Israel. Now, this can get really confusing. I'm, I'm going to do my best to make things clear, but do listen up. So we're talking about the northern kingdom of Israel. What's the deal there? In Israel's history, under David and Solomon, there was one kingdom. But after, the, after Solomon, there was a civil war and the kingdom split in two. The northern kingdom is often called Israel. That's what they call themselves. Uh, the southern kingdom is known as Judah. And so it's Israel, it's the northern kingdom. In 722 BC, the Assyrian army wipes Israel off the map, never to rise again. Now, Nahum doesn't tell us when he's around, but from reading the book, it's pretty obviously after the destruction of Israel. Uh, It's also probably after 701 BC, so 20 years later. 701 BC was when the Assyrians invaded Judah, the southern kingdom. They briefly laid siege to Jerusalem, though that siege uh, ended suddenly probably because a plague hit the army. And you can write this one down. You can read about these two events. You don't have to go to a history book that's outside of the Bible. 2 Kings 18, just one chapter of the Bible summarises these two events, the destruction of Israel and the siege of Jerusalem. Uh, But the Assyrians didn't stop there. They ended up controlling a huge part of the world, from Iraq in the east to Egypt in the west, so all the coloured area on the screen, the different colours, it's a bit complicated, but just imagine all the coloured areas are one empire. And so... In about 663 BC, so 40 years after the siege of Jerusalem, in 663 BC, the Assyrians conquered the Egyptian city of Thebes, quite a way south in Egypt. Now, why is this date important? Well, Nahum mentions this event in chapter 3, verse 8. And that's important for us working out when Nahum fits, because Nahum was written after that date. 
So reading between the lines, uh, Nahum lived between 663 BC when Thebes was captured and 612 BC when Nineveh was captured and the Assyrian Empire ends. So it's sometime in the middle of the 7th century before Jesus. That's the time frame we're talking about. Now, what was Nineveh like? We're going to hear this message of judgment on Nineveh. Were they really that bad? Do they deserve what's coming to them? Well, there are a few verses where Nahum tells us what they're like. So have a look at chapter 1, verse 11. Nahum 1.11. From you, Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. That's a pretty general statement, but we know these people were against God, plotting wicked and evil. And it gets pretty graphic in chapter 3. So have a look at Nahum chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. And jump down to verse 4. All because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistress of sorceries, who enslaved nations by her prostitutions and peoples by her witchcraft. They were violent, cruel, untrustworthy thieves. Uh, this is how one of their kings boasted about he, how he dealt with traitors. It's up on the screen. As for the common men who had spoken derogatory things against my God, Asher, and had plotted against me, the prince who reveres him, that's who reveres Asher, I tore out their tongues and abased them. And there are plenty more quotes like this. Uh, they were not nice people. And so Nahum gets a message from God about these people. Uh, There's no reason to think he took his message to Nineveh, not like Jonah. It's a message he spoke to the people of God, to comfort them, to reassure them, to help them understand what was about to happen. The end of Nineveh is not just history rolling on as it always does. It's something God is actively doing because he is a God who brings justice. And that's the God Nahum proclaims in verse 2. So back in chapter 1 and verse 2, let's have a a listen. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Kamar wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. It's a terrifying image. And some of these words are confronting, jealous, vengeance, wrath. Is this really the same God we meet in Jesus? The same God who says, love your enemies. Well, we need to understand these words properly, especially what they mean when applied to God. One of the problems we have with the with the words we use is we normally use them to talk about people. 
And so if we say a person is jealous or an avenger, what that means in our minds includes how our sinfulness and our finitude, our rebellion against God and our limits as human beings, how we understand these words when we're talking about people makes it a bit confusing when they're applied to God. Now, when when we use the word jealous... We often use it to mean the same thing as envious, wanting something, wanting to keep something to yourself, not wanting anyone else to have it. So we can be jealous of someone else's success or envious of the nice car they drive. And when we're talking about human jealousy, it's a green-eyed monster. But there is a good way to talk about jealousy. Jealousy means to protect something that is precious. For example we should jealously protect the Great Barrier Reef. It's a precious thing. We don't want its beauty spoiled by pollution, so it's good to jealously protect it. Though in our sinfulness, even this good jealousy can be corrupted. You could be jealous and then not want to share the good thing with others. No one else is allowed to snorkel on the reef, only me, because only I know how to protect it. Your jealousy could turn into idolatry, loving this good thing more than God, instead of thanking God for his good gift and the responsibility he's given to us to protect his good gifts. When God is said to be jealous, it's saying he protects that which he finds precious. He jealously guards and protects his people. He's jealous for godliness and his glory to fill the earth. And that means he'll do what is right. He'll punish those who pick on his people and who spoil his good world with evil. God's jealousy is good. Vengeance is also a difficult word to hear applied to God. Revenge is horribly destructive. When someone takes vengeance, it means getting even, out of spite and hate, hurting someone who hurt you, getting back at them. We often talk about vengeance as being the opposite of justice, because vengeance means out-of-control fury rather than calmly considered justice. In our culture, we generally don't approve of people taking revenge. We appreciate, we value the rule of war, of law. And in part, that comes from being shaped by Jesus' command to turn the other cheek. We don't like vengeance. But at the same time, our cultural heroes are the Avengers. We love these comic book heroes because they take vengeance. They use their strength and to protect the weak and vulnerable. They punish and even destroy the wicked. These are our heroes because we wish they were real. We want evil to be avenged. It is good that God takes vengeance because it means evil doesn't have the last word. One of the dilemmas of the superhero is how they end up conflicted by taking matters into their own hands. What drives them? Well, Nahum gives us confidence to trust God's jealousy and vengeance because 
he acts out of wrath. Yes, anger at sin, but he's also patient. Verse 4, slow to anger. Oh, we get a hint of that in history. God didn't wipe out the Assyrians straight away. His justice waited for generations. Yet whilst he's slow to anger, the guilty would not go unpunished. Verse 3, God is just, he is righteous. And that is good news. God was patient with Nineveh. But this means that plenty of kings who were cruel and evil, in this life it looked like they got away with it. In fact, in this life they probably lived in luxury. They got everything they wanted. But since God is God, there will be a day of reckoning, either in this life or the next. And that's good news for those who've been oppressed or abused, whether by warmongering dictators or at an individual level by people in your life. This is good news. God will not leave the guilty unpunished. But it's also terrifying. It's terrifying because the Bible says, and when we're honest with ourselves, we know we are guilty. Maybe not to the level of the warmongering Assyrian kings. But we have not always done what is right. We've manipulated, we've taken advantage of people. We've used what little power we've got to get our own way. The guilty will not go unpunished. That's terrifying. Which is why what Nahum says next about God is such a comfort. So have a look at verse 7, Nahum 1.7. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. This is astounding news. After all we hear about God, that even the oceans dry and trees wither in his presence, it's terrifying. But at the same time, God is a refuge, a place of safety for those who trust in him. Nahum's message is, if you set yourself against God, the future doesn't look bright. But if you come to God for safety, you'll find it. In fact, his vengeance is how he is a refuge. If God did nothing about cruel and violent people, his claim to be a refuge would just be hot air. Part of how God is a refuge is by making an end of those who do evil. And Nahum's message is God will do this. Nahum gave this message in the lead up to 612 BC, in the lead up to Nineveh's destruction. What is historical fact for us was future hope for God's people. Nahum's message is, this is what our God is. This is who our God is, an avenger, jealous for his glory and his people's good. This means Nineveh's days are numbered. And the whole rest of the book is says this in different ways. And so we're just going to briefly look at chapter 2, starting at verse 3, which paints a vivid picture of what God will do. It starts by saying Nineveh will face invasion, Nahum 2, 3. The shields of the soldiers are red, the warriors are clad in scarlet, the metal on the chariots flashes on the day they are made ready. The spears of juniper are brandished. 
The chariots stormed through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. Just as Assyria has waged war, terrifying the people in their way, the same thing is going to happen to them and they're going to be defeated. Verse 5, Nahum 2.5. Nineveh summons her picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash the city wall. The protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. It is decreed that Nineveh will be exiled and carried away. Her female slaves moan like doves and beat on their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless. The wealth from all its treasures. She is pillaged, plundered, stripped. Hearts melt. Knees give way, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. It sounds like what the Assyrians did to Israel, dragging citizens away as slaves. Not only in this picture is Nineveh conquered by human armies who wage war, loot and pillage, but nature is against them too. Verse 6 talks about the river gates and the, the, the opening and the palace collapsing. It's a picture of a flood defeated by water and war. And historically, this is what happened. In 612 BC, a coalition of Babylonian, Median and Scythian troops conquered Assyria, entering Nineveh, destroying and looting. Some historical records suggest it coincided with a flood that weakened the city walls, making it impossible to defend. Both natural and human forces come together against Nineveh. But the point of Nahum's message is, this isn't natural or human justice. This is God's doing. God's justice. It's not just the rolling on of history. It's what God does. The question this raises is, can we say the same thing now? Does this mean the invasion of Ukraine is God's judgment? Was September 11, the Twin Towers attack, was that God's judgment on the pride and greed of capitalism? Is that what Nahum tells us to say? No, we cannot say this, not from the Bible, sadly. Some people do. They, As you sit back smugly because they got badly hit and you didn't, you can comment on things from the other side of the world and say, ah, they're getting what they deserve. But the Bible doesn't allow this kind of simplistic judgment. The only reason we know Nineveh's destruction was the judgment of God is because through Nahum, God said. Without God's word, we'd have no idea. We couldn't interpret it that way. Jesus deals with a very similar kind of question. Uh, In Luke 13, some people ask him about some horrific disasters, natural, man-made They want him to say, yes, those people, those people who were slaughtered got what they deserve. They want Jesus to allow them to sit back and smugly have judgment over the victims. 
But have a listen to what Jesus says. This is from Luke 13. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with the sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. All those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. What's Jesus' answer? No, they didn't die because they were more sinful, so stop being judgmental. It's the same with events today. You cannot say what occurred was the judgment of God. You cannot say it happened because of a particular sin or evil. But at the same time, Jesus says, take stock of yourself. When you hear of horrific events and you're tempted to wonder, are they getting the judgment of God? Don't waste your time judging them. Instead, it's time for reflection and repentance. Unless you repent, you too will perish. Now, this is serious stuff. Uh, We've heard what Nahum says about God, his jealous justice. And we've seen this isn't just theory, but because God is like this, he brought an end to the Assyrian Empire. So how are God's people meant to respond to Nahum's message? Got two answers to that question. How are people meant to respond to Nahum's message? The first is the way that they're not to respond. As you read through Nahum, one of the things that stands out is God never commands his people to do anything. No command to do anything. God doesn't say, look, Nineveh deserves to be destroyed, so get your army together and march. No, God's people are to hear this message, then stand back and see what God does. There's some violent words in this message, but never a command to take up a sword. God will act. In history we see he used the Babylonians and others and he used natural disasters, but no command for God's people to enact violence. The only command they're given is to stand back, celebrate God's justice and find refuge in God. And we see this right at the end, chapter 3, verse 18. Verse 18, these are the last words written by Nahum. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? When this evil nation gets its deserts, not just God's people, but the world will burst into applause. Now, this is complicated, isn't it? Black and white, it says, it kind of, or at least it affirms the celebration when justice is done. It's not really a command, but it kind of says it's a good thing, makes it sound like a good thing. Following Osama bin Laden's death, there was flag-waving, cheering and dancing in the streets. And there, there is something right about that. But there's also something a bit off. 
Uh, What's off is there's no self-examination. No realisation of ways we have done the same things. All nations have been guilty of the similar things. There also needs to be a sense of mourning. There may have been justice. You can raise your own issue, you know, have your own opinion on that, but the mourning of the depth of, of evil and the corruption and destruction of one made in the image of God. It, it's complex. The people will and did burst into applause at Nineveh's end. And Judah, God's people, celebrated the coming peace. So look back to the end of chapter 1, verse 15. Chapter 1, verse 15. Look, there on the mountains the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. These words might sound familiar. Naomi is echoing something said by Isaiah a few hundred years earlier and these words are quoted in the New Testament to talk about the peace won by Jesus. It says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It's a surprising use of these words, at least in how we read them in Nahum. The good news in Nahum's time is Nineveh is destroyed. The good news in the New Testament is the gospel, which we celebrated at Easter. The death and resurrection of Jesus, forgiveness and new life in him. How is the Christian gospel anything like the destruction of Nineveh? Well, the Bible says Jesus' death on the cross is a victory. As Jesus dies on the cross, he conquers sin, death, the devil. He he conquers the spiritual powers that are against God and his people. This is what Colossians 2 says. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authority, authorities. He made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. Nahum says, God will bring compassionate justice. Because of who God is, a jealous avenger with anger against evil, because this is our God, he will not allow evil to go unpunished, which means destruction for Nineveh. Because this is who our God is, he will not allow evil to go unpunished. He will not allow the enemies of his people, sin, death, the spiritual powers and authorities, they will not win. And as Jesus becomes sin. Bearing the punishment for sin on the cross, he triumphs over, he conquers, he destroys our great enemies. We may have started today not knowing much about Nahum, and that's really neither here or there. It's 
not really about knowing about Nahum. We may not have been too comfortable about his message of God's judgment. What's important is through Nahum we come to know God. And we hear the good news of his message. God has won peace for his people so we can find refuge and joy in him. And that's what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise you. We praise you because you are a jealous avenger. You protect your glory and guard your people. And you do this by bringing judgment and justice against evil. We praise you because you are slow to anger, but you don't leave the guilty unpunished. We are so thankful for this because it displays your mercy and grace, which we see most clearly in Jesus. We praise you because in Jesus you don't allow the guilty to go unpunished, but Christ bears his people's sin in his body on the cross. Please help us look at, reflect on your compassionate justice. May we run to you for refuge and safety, knowing that Christ shared in our humanity so we might share in his righteousness and glory. Amen.